Hey everybody, it's Mike Venerable with Sensei Tech, and we are uh, not talking about COVID tonight. That's our new sort of podcast title. It's let's not talk about COVID. Let's talk about something else because uh, we can talk about COVID anytime and all the time. So today I'm joined by uh, Don Wright, who's the CEO of uh, one of our portfolio companies, Clarigent, that's doing some uh, important and uh, timely uh, things in the world today. And I'll let uh, Don introduce himself. And uh, Don, why don't you take a minute to just introduce yourself? little bit of tiny bit of background we'll go into that a little bit more later and then what what the problem Clarigent is trying to solve well thanks Mike for having me um, my name is Don Wright as Mike said I'm currently the CEO of Clarigent Health um, previously was the COO of Assurex Health um, so I've been involved in a number of uh, Cincy Tech companies over the years and um, Clarigent is working to um, I guess if you use our tagline, bring science to mental health. So we are um, specifically using vocal biomarkers. So what people say and how they say it um, to help determine whether they have different um, behavioral health issues such as um, acute suicide ideation, long-term suicide ideation, uh, depression, and other, and other mental health issues. And that's a, that's a big issue. And I think, um, you know, we go back a long way to, uh, to Assurex more than a decade ago now. And uh, one of the things that attracted me to that company originally, and I know got you excited about joining and leading so early, you were the first person I sort of tricked into getting involved in that, was, um, was just this notion of a, just a, a vast part of, you know, vast, a vast problem in population of, of people who have behavioral health issues were basically, you know, not a mainstream part of the healthcare system. And uh, in that case, you know, we were really focused on you know, the the, uh, the pharmaceutical approach to treatment, and uh, now we're sort of on this journey to to take it a different way. But just give me your sense, having been around behavioral health now for all that time, as a as somebody who was in a you know, really successful company, is now in the beginnings of a second really successful company. We hope. Um, how how has perception changed as you interact with people? You know, over time, it'd be kind of interesting, I think, for people to hear. So I think it's, um, so there are positives, right? So uh, certainly the um, one was the Affordable Care Act um, and especially the parity laws that came with that, right? Um, people may not remember, but um, the beginning, you know, kind of the time frame of the beginning of Assurex. So like you said, just a little over 10 years ago, um, it was still considered um, a, a specialist um, to go to, and you had to get special permission to actually go see a psychiatrist. You could only go a few times a year on most plans. Um, it wasn't um, it, it wasn't as mainstream as as we would like. Um, there was still a lot of um, kind of taboo with even depression and anxiety. Um, I think now almost any celebrity will will get on TV and talk about their depression and anxiety issues. Most people will talk about it. It's um, it's uh, it's not something to be embarrassed about anymore. I think suicide, where we started, is still in the phase of um, a little more taboo than those issues. Certainly, um, as I talk to parents that have children who have attempted, um, a lot of times they are embarrassed, uh, worried that it was their fault, um, you know, those types of things. Um, I think that's getting better. Um, I'm encouraged by, uh, there are other companies besides us that are looking at actual technology issues and people are starting to understand that these are 
these are real diseases. Uh, they were very much treated as not real diseases. I mean, before the parity laws, um, the by regulation, Medicare paid sixty-six uh, percent of the allowable amount on a uh, behavioral health um, office visit, um, basically as a cost-cutting measure. But clearly, somebody made a decision they didn't think that these were kind of the same kind of diseases that should be paid at, at full rate. Um, and so, um, and I'm I'm encouraged. Uh, you know, we recently received a, an NIH grant. Um, we're seeing a lot of grant opportunities around behavioral health. There's a lot of interest in it, and a lot of interest in um, what we call service-ready opportunities. So, way less on kind of the basic research because a lot of the people doing the grant opportunities are, are have actually said to me, "We're tired of." pumping money into something and then never seeing results. We want to see technology deployed and we want to see people getting better or, or people saving people's lives. So all of those things are good. Um, it's still tough. It's still not, I mean, behavioral health is still at times not seen as the same thing as, you know, cardiac or, or anything, or even things that used to be even more taboo. Uh, you know, you think about, Cancers used to be terrifying to people and people wouldn't let their kids go to or other go to kids with or school with kids with cancer because they were afraid you could get it somehow by coughing. Of course, AIDS, HIV AIDS was very controversial for a long time. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but um, but it's slow. And, it feels like we're, you know, we're moving in the right direction, but the tide is rising. So it's, yeah. you know, it's like the water's getting deeper. I think you and I have had an interesting experience in the you know, the unwrapping of, so when I, when I first saw the Assure X sort of approach to things, crediting, you know, Dr. Pestian, Dr. Glauser, Sandra Banks, all the, all the people that were involved in that, it was just a, so novel, but just to find out that, you mean, there's a piece of information here that you know about this disease or this drug you're giving me and that those drugs were, I remember we had a board member once who, who was deeply involved in Medicare or Medicaid uh, treatment in uh, another state say that, you know, if we just knew we'd had the diagnosis, that, that we know that it's so hard to diagnose it. If we just knew the drug wasn't making it worse, then we could maybe get the diagnosis correct. Like the, the mystery around it, you know, we, we apply a lot of sort of smoke and mirrors to it, but in reality, you know, we're starting to apply science to it. That's both of these companies did that. One is how, how the drugs are metabolized, the whole pharmacokinetic component to it, pharmacogenetic component to it. But talk a little bit about what's different about Claritin, like, what, you know, what's the approach and and, and how it, you know, how it can, how you, how you're trying to now take that to market. And, and, and I think the most important Don, is like, what's the gap it's filling? Because I think that that clinical gap is the most important part of the story. Yeah. Well, the, one of the huge problems with behavioral health, mental health is um, lack of resources and lack of treatment options. Right. And, and then the ability, even when you have those resources or those treatment options, to differentiate the the patients and where they should and how they should be treated. Um, and so um, what's what's interesting about our product is that initially uh, the research was done in emergency departments because that's where it made sense. You knew why the person showed up. You had the cohorts well defined, and you could you could do the basic research. Clearly, as we've talked about many times, um, while we will always have customers who are using the product in an emergency department, hopefully less and less in emergency departments, because by the time somebody gets to an emergency department, you're way past when you should have been helping that that individual. So um, we are, you know. 
my mantra for this technology is get it to where people are. Stop trying to bring the people to where it is, right? So um, we're looking at uh, where it's being used in school settings. Um, we have work going on down in North Carolina where it's being used um, across pretty much the whole um, spectrum of different places where their patients are. So it'll be used in an emergency department, but for any of their other patients, it'll be used when they're simply at the hospital for something else. It'll be used in outpatient settings. It'll be used in schools. It'll be used. They're even trying to figure out how to use it in their food banks and other things like that. Sort of like, you know, how you, um, you know, take your blood pressure when you go to the pharmacist or something like that. Right. And the idea is how do you help a person and what's the best thing for that person at any particular time that will get them moving in the right direction, right? It, um, you know, I coach soccer. I say, if you can find out that a kid has some issues and isn't socializing enough and you can get them on a soccer team or to a Tuesday afternoon group thing, or, um, or, you know, some people need to be on medications, right? But, um, but it cannot be true that that we actually live in a society where there need to be about 600 million prescriptions for depression and anxiety in the United States when there's only what, 320 million or something people in the United States, right? So, I mean, it, it can't be true that that one size fits all treatment option is, is, is the right option. So, um, you know, being able to use our technology with telemedicine, being able to use our technology with, um, like I said, in schools, um, getting it to the people so that we can start to differentiate which treatment options will work best for those patients long before they end up, God forbid, with a suicide attempt or, or even in a, um, even just an ED visit or, or an inpatient setting. Um, inpatient settings for behavioral health besides costing the system an amazing amount of money. Um, you are 300 times more likely to attempt suicide within the first 30 days after you are discharged from one of those facilities because you're stabilized while you're there and then you're put right back into the same environment that you were in before you went there, right? That's a, that's a lot there. Um, so this, this notion that I think this is the fear that, you know, people have about loved ones, whether it's a child, whether it's a sibling, parent, an older parent, a good friend is how do I know, right? How do I know what's going on? How do I know? It's such a, it's such a, when it first occurs to, to somebody that, that, that one of their family members, had, you know, somebody close to them is having a behavioral health event. It's not, it's not the same. It's fun. one, one, the first thing they'll find is that the system is completely clogged. It's overwhelmed with need and demand. And if you need to get your kid in there, a sibling, kid, somebody into an inpatient setting for an emergency, it's damn near impossible to do that. And the same things that happen in the regular world happen. But this notion of, you know, where are we sensing and where do we, where can we find, you know, people that are in a position where they're needing help and especially in, in sort of the, the, the significant adolescent college age issues we face today in societies, how do we do that? You know, there's a role for schools. There's a role. There's a role for juvenile justice. There's a role for all kinds of parts of the, the, the sort of the, the, the interaction there, where they know things about your kids that you don't know, or they may know something about your student that you don't know. And I think, you know, being able to, and, and, and to your point, expand the treatment, expand the triage process is critically important because for the last thing you want to do is have them end up in a treatment facility. 
Um, talk a little. Can you talk about the, uh, the juvenile justice work that the contract did? Yeah, that we started. I think that's an interesting example. Yeah, it's um, it's it's been a wonderful project so far. Honestly, um, personally exciting to me um, because I have um, for years and years uh, worried about what we do with in juvenile justice systems, just in general, right? Whether it's behavioral health, whether it's it's anything, you know, you, especially once you get to the point where you have to detain that that um, adolescent for a long period of time. Because in many cases, especially in the past, you're just you're just sticking that kid in a facility, and then they turn 18. So you release them, and you wonder why they don't go find a job or something, right? Um, but these kids are 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 certainly in danger, and they they almost always have some type of underlying behavioral health issue. Uh, I said this the other day when I was talking to uh, Judge Williams um, at Hamilton County Juvenile Justice. These kids aren't born evil. They aren't born bad. There's things going on around them that are that are causing them to do this. And so, um, we've started the project there, uh, where the um, and we're working also with uh, Terrace Metrics, who does kind of a um, things we don't do, like looking at um, resiliency and those types of things. Um, in addition to the uh, the work we do with the kids, or our product does with the kids, um, they're looking at the assessment center when a child is brought in. Um, I think. You know, we could spend we could spend hours on what I've learned about how juvenile justice works, but and kind of the innovative things that Hamilton County in particular are doing. But you know, the the judges down there and all the people who work there, they do everything they can to get those kids back into a setting that will help them. So, how do we take this child? You know, obviously, if if a kid just shot somebody, that's a different situation. But if it's shoplifting, if it's you know some other type of theft, if it's a fight, whatever. They're not looking to put them into detention. They're looking to get them back into an environment where they can get to school. They can um, they can do you know um, both from a cost perspective, but more importantly, and I will be honest, I have been so amazed by every person I've met at Hamilton County Juvenile Justice and how caring they really are. It's easy to to be suspicious of those types of groups around the country. We say these are just people who want to lock kids up. Well, they're not, right? They're they're there. They want to help these these children, um, and um, and some of the stories that they tell me are heartbreaking down there. But um, th but so we're using the assessment center as part of figuring out. Okay, a kid has just been brought in by a police officer. He's new to the system. They're trying to figure out can they let this person this child go home. Um, to their parents and have a parole officer watch them until uh, watch over them until they get a, an actual um it's not called a trial in juvenile justice but until they're in front of a judge um or do they have to hold them those types of things and one of the things that they're looking at besides just are they violent is are they a danger to themselves and so um they're using our product for that when they do detain um individuals they're using um, our product just on an ongoing basis with those children to figure out whether they're at, at risk for crisis, um, whether something, um, it's, it unfortunately happens a lot. These children are in one of the worst possible places they could be for, you know, you think about a, you know, a 13 year old kid away from their parents um, already having issues. Uh, and now we are training uh, the parole officers to be able to use it when they do a home assessment. And we're, we're talking to 
um, juvenile justice about the best practices around could we make all of the technology available to look at the whole family unit or all of the people around that child to try to figure out what's really going on mm-hmm. in that environment. And then, you know, there's other groups within the city, um, Children's Home, Lighthouse, Talbert House, Cincinnati Children's uh, Hospital that support Hamilton County Juvenile Justice. And so they're starting to use our product with the children that are then sent to them for whether it's outpatient psych or whether it's an acute problem in, a, in an urgent care or an emergency department. So it's um, it's a pretty, as it's being rolled out, um, a very kind of closed loop, let's, let's watch after these kids, kind of once we know them, we watch after them now um, and using technology to do part of that. Disappeared down yeah. back. Yeah. You must have, you must have came, I saw you were just really contemplating what I was saying. <laughs> was, that was me thinking. That's what it looks like when I think a little this little circle goes around like uh, the yeah. the beach ball. Um, demystification is is you know is part of this. I think you know mainlining and getting people to understand like there, but for the grace of God, go I. Mm-hmm. You know there are many of us who you know in our youth or did wayward things. I think there's this notion though that that if people People probably don't want to talk about this or think about it, but we all sort of operate on a continuum. Of, I mean, it's not a truly bipolar; it's multipolar. But you can simplify it to say I'm either I can go all the way to depression, where I think about self harm, or I can always go, go all the way to manic, and yeah. I'm sort of you know, out of control on that end. And we sort of live in this continuum, and everybody's sort of got their range that they operate within. And then circumstantially, episodically. Um, things happen, and if especially if they spiral, you can sort of get locked into a depressive state and move beyond that. And and the, and the real challenge with you know, episodic suicide is somebody sort of jumps into that spot right away. And I think that's one of the great you know uses of this technology is to try to identify that. But I, but it would be interesting you know to talk a little bit about that scale, if you will, kind of state transition and and how you think about that in terms of the future of the company and what 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 the technology can do to help sort of manage the disease as opposed to manage an episode yeah and i i think that's um and i just said disease and i should have said the condition or the you know the state that you're in you know yeah i um we all slip back into it <laughs> we do we do i'm i'm on the board of american association of suicidology and three people at the annual conference got in trouble for saying commit suicide on stage instead of die by suicide because it's a taboo now so there's you have to transition your language I know that the time yeah um i'm sticking with commit yeah so um my we'll go back to that because i think there's a point yeah that's important yeah maybe i'll get thrown off the (laughs) podcast my own i don't think you can be thrown off um so now i forgot your question oh the spectrum yeah so i agree so um so in general i think we're starting to understand first that um like you said behavioral health mental health um any of those types of issues are really spectrum diseases like autism and other diseases period and and then even people who aren't diagnosed um certainly have um, periods of time where they are expressing um, depressive symptoms or anxious symptoms and those types of things because what's going on. So re- really, every person has some set of issues um, that they that they deal with. Um, and yeah, so um, actually, if I was uh, if I was at the office right now, I could show you. There's a graph on our whiteboard wall, on our whiteboard wall that um, someone drew of me showing that my state is probably 
worse than others because I'm an entrepreneur and I, you know, so my base is is kind of up here. And so you get the first reading on me and, uh, and you say, holy cow. And then you get the second and the third one. You're like, oh, well, that's just where he normally is. So it's fine. You know, and you're and you're looking for and, and I think this is where the technology is really interesting. I think it's um, it's certainly useful as a triage product and as a screening product. But I think the monitoring um, aspect of it is is really important um, and we showed that in the first school study we did where we got 16 interactions with kids because we were able to build a baseline for that individual and then show where they were to their own baseline not just to where they were against other people who were who were suicidal or not suicidal right and and those things are super important they're important from a monitoring and making sure that somebody's not moving towards crisis standpoint and you know, the, the interesting thing to me about that is that it's um, my, my own psychiatrist explained this to me one day a long time ago that um, it's just it's it's basically just as bad for somebody to spike good as it is bad if there's no clinical reason for why the good happened. Right. So it's the anecdotal you know thing where somebody um, attempts in an office and everybody says, boy, Don's been a grump his whole life and he's been happy for the last 30 days. We thought he had turned a corner. Well, he turned a corner because either consciously or subconsciously, he wasn't worried about the future anymore because he was making a plan. Right. So you got to know. So as the so we can't know that he didn't buy a new dog that he fell in love with or he met a, a, a woman or whatever. Um, all we know is something changed and it's up to whoever's taking care of, of him to um, to kind of figure out whether that's there's a reason for that change. Um, it's also very useful, and this has always been a problem. Actually, when we write Assurex, as, as you know, we um, we looked at this technology. Um, we actually sponsored a couple of the more, one of the clinical trials, and um, something that was really interesting to us at the time was um, Assurex. By definition, was kind of a one-time test. I mean, there were ways we could get additional um, uses and when there was new information that came out, but in reality, it, it's a genetic test. So, and we didn't, except for in our trials, follow patients. So we were a lab to, to a physician, right? And so what we wanted to do was find a way to figure out, well, when they changed that medication, did the person get better, right? Mm -hmm. And I think- um, It's important. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and there's not enough, um, my my poor personal psychiatrist, besides having to treat me, he has to listen to me, like ask questions like this, like, do you actually have a plan for ever getting rid of me, right? Are you, did you change my medication and are you noting somewhere on a piece of graph paper that I'm getting better so that someday somebody else can use my every other Thursday slot? <laughs> you know, those types of things. Um, and I think what, what we give is an objective measure that yes, we, you know, a treatment change occurred here, whether it was a new medication or whether it was, you know, sending uh, the person to a, a group um, environment to, to talk about their issues or, or even just um, a different type of one-on-one -on -one interaction with their uh, physician. And, and it looks like they're, there's a change. They're actually getting better. Um, and that's important. That's huge. Uh, it's important, you know, it's interesting because I always, I have to talk to so many different, you have to talk to investors, I have to talk to doctors, I have to talk to insurance companies. So my number one most important thing about all this is it's important because it's helping us make somebody better. I mean, it's helping the doctor make somebody better. It's also important though, because it, it helps the system, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. system pays less for that individual if they're, if they're getting better and they're on the right treatment. And especially if you catch them earlier, 
I mean, you know, you end up in an inpatient facility, you you've knocked out the actuarial table for that. Per I mean, you'll, you'll never make up <laughs> for that. person. Well, the other, yeah. Right? The other thing that happens yeah, is you spiral. Yeah, you spiral. Yeah. And when you spiral or continue, you end up also, you know, sort of on more meds. Oh yeah. And, you know, sort of bouncing around things like that. Well, we, so, you yeah. know, we all know that rolling, you know, we know when to that. That's a whole nother sort of conversation. Yeah. I think this notion though of, um, so here's what I love about this whole company and is, this is mysterious and scary for people like people you and this is why i think agency is important about this whole commit suicide construct yeah. you said are you making a plan is, is some you know one thing you ask are you, you know if, if somebody's yeah. suicidal they start to plan it or you know they don't just ideate they're just not a, it's not a random thought you have in a car when you're pissed off about something or you think you know something people every everybody has thought i would if they're honest with themselves they've all had that a, a thought of that in their sometime point in their life, you know, to, to deny that is to not, is really not to be realistic about what this really continuum of thought really is that you can have. Yep. It's sort of innate within us somehow. Um, but this notion of, you know, it's, it's so mysterious, but, you know, if you take agency out of it, you know, people have to plan, they have to do, you know, think it through. Um, even though it can be in a very compressed period of time, there's some element of planning that's going on. And I think, you know, the, the one thing about this is to one, reduce the mystery for the, for the pace, for the person. Like if I take this, can, are you guiding me in a different way than just answering questions or being assessed? Like this is sort of how people think about, oh, this must be better to do it this way to, to sort of objectively measure something about me, almost like a blood test, but not like a blood test. And the second thing is it starts to inform all the people around that are now hypersensitive and aware and scared to death. Yes. about what's going to happen like what's happening what's happening with my loved one my spouse my co-worker my kid my parent me you know what's happening that sort of removing the mystery is sort of step one to getting you know getting people to think about you know oh i'm showing up that i might be suicidal then you know the you know, the person who's engaged with them, we triage, you triage them differently and you get to this point of how to back them out of that, that, that path as quickly as possible. So there's a lot of interest in this down, like across a lot of different kinds of organizations, not just, I, I, I want to try to list them. I just think it'd be interesting to have you talk about sort of the archetypes of, of prospects and customers that you're talking to that sort of span the spectrum of, you know, in many cases, more, more than more diverse than we thought when we started. Yeah. So, um, you know, so our, our first clinical trial, once we built the actual product around the technology, was done in school settings. So um, it, in the clinical trial, it was agencies that support the schools. We now have both agencies that support schools and the schools themselves. So the schools are using it more in a screening process as part of their assessment of a child. And then typically the agencies that supply social workers or psychologists and others um, are using it in the ongoing therapy and monitoring of what's going on. We have actually, um, you know, so that's, well, so that's a, a really interesting um, group for us because, um, you know, something like 50% of all people who end up with, um, with an issue that is um, enough to kind of change their life, to affect their work, to affect their school, 
Um, those symptoms start by the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 22 or 23. So, um, so you, you have the ability to start catching things early. And, um, and like you said, I mean, school settings, especially, you know, I say, you know, school settings and, and coaches, they see are, you know, for like soccer or whatever, they see the kids in many cases, more hours of waking hours than the parents do, because, you know, you come home, you get rushed, you have dinner, kids go off to do their homework and they go to bed, right? So um, so you have that kind of captive um, audience there to, to, to help them. Um, we have examples now in those settings where children were um, unfortunately making plans to harm themselves and the technology point, uh, you know, pointed the therapist towards maybe pushing harder on them because they were lying um, when they were being asked. If you think about, um, and, and like you said earlier, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I think about our technology, and we've seen it um, in the other examples too that I'm about to give of where we're being used. You don't talk about suicide, self-harm, any of those types of topics when you're doing the five minute interview with the patient. Okay. You talk about hope and anger and fear, those types of things. And it gets, it's something you just have to be able to interview them. It gets um, emotional response in their voice and then, and then the technology takes over. So it's very different. Um, and, and in the case of at least one child, um, I have no idea whether it was boy, girl or name, but I've seen the chart <laughs> that with de-identified, um, they were, telling their therapist for a pretty long period of time that they were fine. Um, when at the same time, our technology was firing and often telling the therapist that they weren't. And eventually the therapist confronted them with it. And they said, well, yes, I've been putting a plan together and, and I'm going to do this, you know? So, so that's kind of a really kind of concrete, acute version of, you know, what can our technology do? But I think, um, another place where we're, um, where we're being used is in adult, um, outpatient um, clinics. So um, behavioral health specialists, basically. And um, we have multiple ways it can be used there. It can be used in a therapeutic session. It can be used in between sessions, which I think is, is even more interesting because, and that can be done through telemedicine. Um, basically, they click on a Zoom link and they can either talk to their physician or somebody that works at their physician's office, or we provide a service where we have people that can do the five-minute interview and then the information goes back. And we have a um, we have a uh, doctor who uses us to do the not me obviously but trained people to uh, to do the uh, interview and um, the first two patients they put through so basically the way it works is you see your patient every other week and the week you're not seeing them you. Um, you give them a link and they click and they, they do the interview. And that way you're getting in, you're not using your therapeutic time with the patient to do it. And you're getting a view of how they are when they're not at your office or when they're not speaking directly to you. And both patients that, um, that he turned, that he put into our program came back um, flagged as high, which honestly worried us a little bit at first, <laughs> um, you know, it was our first, um, it was our first customer using our service and um but but we know our technology works it's, we've got five clinical trials now so um the interesting thing is we're still in a position with these patients with these customers where they're paying customers but they've signed an agreement with us to allow us to do qualitative interviews with them um to talk about kind of how the product worked where it could be easier to use those types of things 
And so when we talked to him about this, um, the one patient, in both cases, he decided that the technology was correct. In neither case did had he flagged them as, as that being the, the primary issue that he was working with them on. And in one case, um, the patient and he, I mean, effectively what he said to the patient was, look, I don't think you're suicidal. It's not what I'm treating you for. You're not saying that to me. I don't think you're lying, but we've got this third party technology that you agreed to do. And it's telling me there's something going on. Let's talk about that. Right. Mm-hmm. Which was a lot less kind of um, accusatory and, and intrusive. You know, he's not saying that you're lying to me. <laughs> he's saying um, something else sees it. Let's talk about it. And in in one case, that patient eventually said, yes, I think about it all the time, but I just don't tell you about it, um, mm-hmm. sort of like the, the kid. But the other one was interesting, and this is where we start talking about upstream, right? So um, by the end of their 45 minutes of talking about it, they decided that she was early on in going uh, down this path, but she wasn't lying about it. She just never would have identified the things that she was thinking and, and planning as being suicidal. They were more just like, wouldn't it be better if I wasn't here? Not that I'm going to act on it, or wouldn't it be better if I didn't have to worry about this happening in the future? Mm-hmm. Those types of things. And these are the way more upstream things that we're looking for, because if we can help identify that, the ultimate goal is identify it before they show any symptoms. Right. Identified through the voice and through and through other you know motion and those types of things, um, and so he was very impressed by that. And then I guess the the other really interesting stuff happened um, when we started implementing in an emergency department. So we're also in hospitals, um, hospital systems. So that's everything from inpatient to emergency department to discharge um, to the outpatient facilities associated with that system. And then in really progressive groups like the one we're working with in North Carolina. It's um, it's everything, like I said before, they're talking to the schools, the food pantries, everything. But but thinking about, we were doing a, um, a pilot in the emergency department down there just to prove to their upper management that, that the, the product was gonna work. It's mostly a, a workflow issue at this point. We know the technology works, but it's how do you plug it into what they're doing or change what they're doing to be more efficient, right? Um, and, we we've now have a white paper that we've written um, with them. Um, a, so we have a journal article about the actual results, right? And that's got all the area under the curve and all the fancy data science stuff. The, the white paper is more qualitative. It's about what did the patients say? So patients said things like, this is the first time I've ever shown up in an emergency department and it felt like somebody cared about me. Hmm. Because I I think of it and it's not, I mean, sometimes it is as bad as what I'm about to say, but I, but I, but I always think of it this way. When you do the Columbia, the CSSR, right, which is the standard kind of way you check to see if somebody's suicidal, um, we could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah. Um, but um, it's like you hold a clipboard and you say to the person, "How many times have you thought about harming yourself in the last two weeks? Have you thought about harming yourself and, and tried to do it and gotten caught by somebody else? Have you attempted and ended up, you know, it, it's these types of questions, right? Whereas it's an interrogation. Yeah, it, it is. And people feel that way. Yeah. And pretty easy to lie if you want to, one way or the other. And you're talking to somebody who you've never never met before. And you wonder what the consequence in interrogation. So if you say yes, what are the consequences? Right. And, and if you say yes, 
you you might want to say yes because you might want to sleep at the hospital tonight or you might you know whatever right there's all kinds of ways you could go with that with ours you're asking them you know tell me a little bit about secrets how do secrets affect your life and you talk not what are your secrets just what are they and so and the doctors and the nurses that work in the emergency department gave us quotes that say things like this is the first time i've felt like i've actually interacted with a patient and learned more about them um and so it, it has a, a very different effect. And, um, and, and in many cases um, in that study found people who, who maybe were not there, they, they were, well, they could have been there for any reason. We had a behavioral health cohort and a broken bone cohort. Um, but it pointed out um, some interesting, what those doctors and nurses found very interesting and helped them figure out which outpatient type of scenario they should be sending that patient to. Um, and, and so um, I think some of the qualitative things about what we're doing um, are kind of just as important if, and, and they all lead to getting an objective measure, right. Mm -hmm. Which they never had before. I mean, people, you, you know, you talked about it before, but people don't realize that, I mean, even though there's PHQ nines and ham and all these scales that you can do on people, first of all, almost no one uses them. <laughs> Right. I mean, and even when you use them, um, you know, I could take a PHQ nine now and in the afternoon and tomorrow and it might come out very differently. And you're, you're just kind of catching them. So the more, the more you can use this technology kind of embedded in, in the daily life of a person, um, you know, and you're not going to do a PHQ nine with somebody every 15 minutes. That's just not going to work. Right. This so, the, yeah, this is the, this is a battle against subjectivity. Yeah. Well, we started it at Assurex. We'll continue it now. So the work John's doing, Dr. Pestrin's doing on the genetic side of this is a similar. You know, we, we have to bring objectivity to it because I, you know, you we you and I both know how many people we talk to about, um, you know, the Assurex test and the role of the gene. You know, how you metabolize these drugs is critical to whether you should take them or not based on your your uh, genetic profile. And you know, how many people told us? No, I know what drug to prescribe. I know oh. which one will work because you know everybody who's got brown hair. I give this. People get this one, and right. And at the beginning of Assurex, the same people who would tell us they didn't believe genetics played a role in it, when you ask them what the first thing they asked a patient before they decided if they were going to give them like Prozac or Zoloft was, "Have you had any of these drugs before? And have you have you had a reaction? And have your sisters or your parents had any reactions to these drugs before?" And I'm like, well. That's genetics, <laughs> right? So no, it's just eating the same thing at dinner. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there was a dead giveaway. It's like it was the great, you know, I just, I always just remember the moment when I realized, like, you know, this and you're not telling, you know, this, like, this is shit, you know, and you're not saying anything about it. You're not telling me as a patient that, that this is relevant to me. It's just amazing. And we're so, you know, we're at the beginning, we're at the doc, kind of at the Lister age of this whole thing. You know, the, the, the boils and bleeding part is where we're, you know, kind of the barbershop medicine. We got a long right. way to go. The good news is I do think the profession and the professionals have changed Yeah, and, and they are much more aware of this. I think um, that, you know, that, that the first step isn't necessarily more meds. The first step is, do I, you know, am I communicating with the patient? Do I have a, right. you know, do I have a way to interact with them? And, and the biggest crisis we have, and that's why this technology like this and others are so important, is we just don't have enough clinicians to service the need, and the need is growing. And it's terribly frightening for anybody to go through this process with a loved one. 
It's just the scariest thing. And the need was growing at an almost unbelievable pace. And then I know this is the, let's not talk about COVID. <laughs> we can always, at the end, we always have a COVID related concert. <laughs> but, but given that we, we took a whole bunch of, uh, you know, we, we took a whole bunch of kids and took them away from all the social interaction that they were having. And we took parents and furloughed them and, and sent them home. And we, we did a whole lot of things that, and on top of that, scared the hell out of a whole lot of people. I mean, people were afraid to go to the shopping mall or something, right? Because they thought they might get COVID and um, and didn't know what would happen. You know, and everybody has a story about somebody they know who was affected a different way with COVID. Um, there was a lot of unknowns about what it did to people. Um, I think if nothing else, it, it made whatever was the weakest part of them worse, I think, worse. yeah. Yeah, it was a good example to sort of double down on whatever got you down already. Right, because you could find it in the story, whether you're afraid of. Yeah, I think I think we're in a great human experiment now. I was talking to somebody about this recently. Of, it's not just not this is not about the pandemic. It was started before then. But when I think about, I don't know if you read the, it was a great video on the Wall Street Journal website about the the TikTok algorithm mm-hmm. and how nefarious it can be. Like all these, and I always say, you know, if you're being if you're if you're getting information through a feed, you're basically a farm animal. I mean, you're, basically you're being fed and you're not looking outside, but it's the, it's the notion of what percentage of your feed is really generated by things you've already shown a high affinity for right. and how rapidly they've got you sort of swirling around that whirlpool. This sort of you know, always on constantly being fed things that are reinforcing often of things that are, that are negative, not positive in your mind, mm-hmm. which you need balance. Obviously the other thing is like the, the, you know, the, the reduction in birth rates is basically, this is not good or bad. I'm just saying that the concept of extended family is the fundamental underpinnings of human culture going back more than probably 10,000 years yep. is going away. I mean, it's people are going to have fewer extended families, maybe no aunts and uncles, no cousins, no nothing. They live wherever they want to. That's just a, a rearranging of things. And I think also just the you know, the rise of a secular culture. And I'm not advocating for anything. I'm just saying the reality is we've got factors at work today that didn't, that never were there before. And I think it, it contributes to this sort of need for um, people coming sort of disconnected and finding ways to reconnect. And yeah. um, COVID was just sort of the frosting on that cake of cha- on that cake of change. So. Yeah. All right, Donnie, thank you. It's always great to catch up. We talk a lot, I know, but I thought this is kind of a good way to just chat about stuff and uh, in a in a non-company sort of context. Just, right. I mean, it was about the company and about the problem, but it wasn't me asking you, hey, it's happening this week. So <laughs> thanks for thanks for taking time. Well, this was great. I I could talk to you all day, Mike. We could we could do this every week. I'm just, we, we just pick a topic. <laughs> all right. Great to see you, man. Yep. I'll see you next week at tennis. Correct. <laughs> Not tonight. Not tonight.